it's you know to just to tell industry be different you know and be safer and not really have a plan for how companies get there and and what resources they're supposed to use in order to get there and um, what direction they're supposed to be observing you know it's it's just it, it's very much you know still at the level of vision versus how we actually going to put this in place Welcome to the new HBW Insight over-the-counter podcast with me, David Ridley, Senior Editor, Europe. In this new podcast, I'll be talking to industry figures and experts about new trends and issues emerging in the global consumer healthcare market. In this episode, I catch up with HBW Insight Executive Editor, Ryan Nelson, to discuss what's going on in the US and European cosmetics industries. Taking a long view of recent news, as reported in the beauty section of HPW Insight, Ryan identifies a rise in regulation in both the US and Europe, which has taken on new dimensions and urgency since the coronavirus pandemic. On the US side, the Personal Care Product Safety Act promises comprehensive, large-scale reform that would require cosmetics manufacturers, for example, to register their facilities, products and ingredients with the FDA to report serious adverse events even providing an annual report of all adverse events received by a company and pay user fees to support FDA functions. Meanwhile, in the EU, the European Green Deal, which seeks to make the region climate neutral by 2050, stands to have enormous impacts on the cosmetics industry. Specifically, the new sustainable chemical strategy, unveiled in late 2020, places emphasis on hazards versus risk and alludes to automatic bans for chemicals that cause cancers or gene mutations, affect the reproductive or the endocrine system, or are persistent and bioaccumulative. On both sides of the Atlantic then, Ryan sees an unrelenting drive for increased regulation, which raises questions about what and whom it will serve ultimately, particularly when compared with the burdens being levied on industry and the repressive effects on small businesses. Hi Ryan, thanks for coming on the Over the Counter podcast uh, for this special edition on cosmetics. Thank you David, yeah I'm very happy to be here. So would you like to firstly just introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Ryan Nelson, I'm the executive editor of HBW Insight, Um, been covering the uh, cosmetics industry specifically for about, oh I don't know, since 2004, I guess. Um, and of course, uh, that was with Rose Sheet, and it has become HBW Insight. And now we cover, of course, OTC drugs and dietary supplements um, and sort of look at the overall sort of consumer health sector. So um, very happy to be on this edition of Over the Counter to give a, a sort of beauty overview. So thanks and for having me. Yeah, brilliant. And you are kind of single-handedly almost uh, covering the US and the EU, aren't you? Um, yeah, well, Laura Nardella is a, a regular freelancer of ours who contributes some great work. Um, and uh, we have, you know, uh, other team members who cover the space a bit as well. But uh, but yes, have uh, the lead sort of on the content development within our beauty channel. That's the B of HBW. <laughs> so, yeah, so I thought it would be great if um, if I spoke to you and you could just give us a kind of overview of what's going on. Uh, in the cosmetics industry on both sides of the um, Atlantic. So should we start with the US? Um, What's going on in the US at the moment? Yeah, sure. It's, um, 
you know, to some extent, it's the same old story, but there's also, um, you know, some new urgency to it in certain respects uh, this year and in the uh, new Congress in the U.S. Um, and it has a bit of a different character to it, uh, more focus on environmental concerns, for example, versus strictly human health concerns. Um, but, you know, I think the the issue is still very much that um, regulatory pressure is definitely increasing. Uh, we've seen this for some time, you know, where it's just becoming um, companies are facing more and more regulation, both at the federal and state levels. Um, and this doesn't seem to be changing. You know, it's we have, uh, you know, we can talk about legislation. There's there's some major uh, pieces of legislation uh, that would really provide dramatic overhauls of the cosmetic space. And those are again in play uh, in this Congress. There are some new bills. And then there are sort of some side bills to deal with issues that are relevant to the cosmetics industry. There's just a lot on the table. So industry has a lot in front of it um, and is going to be busy for sure. And so there's one major bit of legislation, isn't there? Um, the Personal Care and Product Safety Act. Um, do you want to just say a little bit about that? Yeah, that's that's the so that's Senator Dianne Feinstein in um, California who is uh, heading that up again. She has introduced this bill for the last couple sessions at least, um, and it really is a very comprehensive, um, large-scale reform proposal um, that would require manufacturers to do, well, a number of things. I mean, they'd have to register facilities and ingredients, products with the FDA, report serious adverse events. Um, it would empower the FDA to recall products, you know, basically mandatory recall orders, it would, um, you know, have them establishing good manufacturing practice, give them access to company records, which has always been sort of a gray area under the existing law. So, you know, when can FDA sort of order you to turn over records to them in the context of like an inspection or, or some sort of safety concern? Um, and it would require the FDA to, uh, to review ingredients that are using cosmetics in sort of a systematic way. Um, so there's a lot packaged into this legislation. Um, and uh, this year it actually also would um, require some allergen labeling on products. So that's another issue that has really been uh, of increasing interest. Uh, and it addresses the per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, if I said that correctly, which everybody I think is calling PFAS, um, which is another issue we can maybe get into a little bit more. But um, but yeah, that bill is on the table again. You know, it's a, it's a new Congress, so it's possible that, you know, with, with uh, Democrats in control, this could be, you know, that could, you could see a new impetus behind that. But um, this bill has really run into some of the same problems again and again in terms of like impasses with stakeholders where they can't really negotiate around things like preemption and uh, and that that ingredient review that FDA would be doing. So so we'll have to see how it how it plays out. But uh, but yeah, that one again is in, is um, has been proposed and. Um, and Schakowsky, uh, Jan Schakowsky also is uh, supposedly uh, going to be introducing her reform proposal as well, which is another even probably, you know, well, I, I think less, even less favorable um, to industry. Uh, one that really in the past they haven't even deigned to talk about uh, because it just really um, would be very severe in terms of the uh, impositions on industry and and so forth. So uh, a so lot going on. So with the with the personal care uh, bill, is that 
is that a new is that a new bill or is that not has that been attempted before yeah i mean it's it's been attempted before so you know one of the biggest issues i think from what we can tell is is the issue of preemption um so that would be you know federal preemption of like state and local requirements because what you have going on in the u.s and this has been happening for you know a decade plus um is this increase of state and you know local requirements on companies to label their uh, ingredients different ways or to report different information or to um you know to eliminate certain ingredients from use and so forth and and they sometimes you know conflict with or add to federal requirements and then you get this you know what industry talks about a lot with this patchwork across the u.s where you have to comply with the federal stuff you have to comply with you know this town or city's uh requirements as well as the state's requirements and it really becomes very difficult to navigate um and so preemption what you know industry both the personal care products council and the independent beauty association both um have really you know made preemption one of their foremost priorities um so that you know they would just have to uh, comply with federal regulations and you wouldn't have to worry so much about all of these different conflicting requirements at the state and local levels. Uh, the NGO, you know, the NGOs, I, you know, are, are resistant to that idea. Some in Congress are resistant to that. They don't want to take away state rights, but um, it, you know, there's certainly a, a, much to be said for the argument that industry is advancing there. Um, and particularly, you know, the burdens on small companies that, that don't necessarily have the the capacity to be dealing with so much regulation that differs from place to place. Um, this sounds quite similar. Sounds quite. I was just going to say it sounds quite similar to the endless debate about harmonisation in the EU. Um, I mean, it seems like yeah, like you say, you have all these different states with different regulations. That must be impossible to navigate for a company that sells across the US. So I mean, surely some harmonisation would be good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, you can look at it different ways. There's, um, you know, something else that's happening this year, which is this um, sort of new approach we're seeing from some of the uh, NGOs that get behind legislation uh, relevant to cosmetics. Um, they are now, I think because they've kind of run into these dead ends with the big, massive reform bills for cosmetics, um, they're kind of breaking out components of those and just making them their own individual bills. Um, and, and in some respects, you know, well, actually in many respects, those individual bills then, you know, there's one on um, promoting transparency in the supply chain. There's one on um, protecting salon workers. There's one on uh, flavor and fragrance ingredient transparency. Uh, another that would sort of ban a number of just, you know, uh, the biggest targets in terms of ingredients of concern. The, a lot of cases there that they are modeled after stuff that's already gone through in California that is already California law. Um, and once it becomes California law, you know, it's, you know, it, I think the the consensus is that most companies then just sort of conform to California's standards and requirements because, you know, it's like the fifth largest economy in the world or whatever. And, and they're not going to do something different in California than do something different in all these other states. They just kind of follow California law. So it's sort of questionable whether or not you actually need like a federal bills to also do it um but again i guess that would promote sort of some of the uniformity um <laughs> that industry is after but I, although this is sort of going in a different direction than i think they would like it to go yeah i suppose that's um that's maybe the bit that's difficult to understand from a you know european point of view or you know from a uk point of view um 
that you've got this federal system that California seems to loom so large uh, in that landscape. But then isn't California quite like, is it a Democrat state or is, seems to be quite progressive in terms of, uh, yeah. you know, its laws and stuff. So, yeah, yeah they have, like super majorities in the in legislature, um, Democratic. And yeah, it, it's sort of leading the progressive charge out of California. So, I mean, I, I think <clears throat> for a long time, um, you know, the NGOs, uh, Congress members and so forth have, have agreed and even industry agrees to an extent that, you know, there needs to be some update to cosmetics regulations. Um, there really hasn't been a major update. They've done things on sort of the color, I think, uh, color requirements for cosmetics, but there hasn't been like a major update to co to cosmetics regulations since like 1938, they always like to say, you know, those who are pushing for this. Um, and so it seems long overdue. Um, but uh, in the absence of that, you know, right now the requirement at the federal level is basically cosmetics need to be safe before they go on the market. And uh, FDA does provide some guidance for how you would go about doing that, um, demonstrating that safety before you put a product on the market. But California has definitely been sort of leading the charge in, in doing its own thing to, to um, you know, to require companies to do more than just sort of behind the scenes, ensure that things are safe and uh, and I think a lot of the states are following what California does. So we're, we're continuing to see that happening. So you said a little bit about um, how industries received the personal care uh, bill, but, you know, this whole, basically this whole point you're making about, you know, the, a kind of increase in regulation. But you want to say a bit more about that? How, you know, how is industry um, reacting? Are there different parts of industry that have different views on this? It's it's really, you know, it's difficult to tell exactly where everybody falls. I mean, the you have a, a certain amount of general support for, like I said, like the the idea of a, an update, modernization is what they're calling it to the cosmetics regulations. Um, but it's really a matter of degree, right? It's like so, how much of that update is needed? Because, you know, for the most part. There are disagreements around this, but cosmetics has a pretty good safety record. You know, these these you're not having the the consistent issues that maybe you have on like a food safety side or um, in some of the other areas that FDA regulates. Um, it's got a pretty good record. I mean, you see some of the same issues coming up time and again. They get a lot of attention. You know, some things like uh, asbestos in talc uh, has gotten a lot of attention, uh, deservedly, and. Um, you know, and you see sometimes with hair products that, you know, cause people's hair to fall out. Um, not really sure how that's happening. It hasn't really been well spelled out, but uh, things like that um, and hair straightening products that expose people to formaldehyde. So some of the same issues, but whether or not, you know, those things would warrant a massive overhaul um, like that is envisioned in the Personal Care Products Safety Act, um, I think is sort of the debate. You certainly have like smaller small business i think is very resistant to the idea that we need this this very big massive overhaul and, and maybe there are there are subtler ways to go about this to achieve the ends that are sought without um doing things that they think could really cripple small businesses that could sort of make it an uneven playing field where big companies have the resources to take on all of these new requirements whereas small companies may not um and that could sort of you know impact innovation and uh consumer choice and all those things. So um, definitely differing viewpoints about what is needed 
Um, so, you know, that that's the complexity of it. I mean, the stakeholders obviously have not been able to come to an agreement uh, of what this thing should look like. Um, but um, we'll see what starts happening. I, mean, I think they also don't want what we've been seeing where, where they have to battle you know, a dozen bills that are all trying to do different pieces of what the major bill would accomplish. So they're in a challenging place. Um, so we'll look forward to seeing, yeah, how they how they tackle this. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the you know large versus smaller bits of industry in terms of companies, because I think I've noticed this with, uh, for example, food supplement uh, legislation in the EU. Um, you know, maybe the bigger companies wouldn't mind a little bit more regulation that would bring some harmonization but then the smaller companies don't want it because they can't afford for example like studies you know the, when it comes to safety and efficacy like some of the studies that they would have to do are just too expensive so uh, it's interesting that you see that with this maybe you know with cosmetics being uh, less regulated than perhaps pharmaceuticals for example right right well it's it's things like you know, I, I think it makes sense for companies, uh, you know, I, I think it makes sense. And I think there's some consensus that it would be appropriate for companies to register with the FDA. So the FDA has a sense of, of who's out there, who the players are, uh, can get in touch with them as needed if any safety uh, issues arise. But there are other things in these bills, you know, the, the serious adverse event reporting also seems, you know, fair enough. But um it would require, you know, packages of all adverse events received by a company to be reported on an annual basis. That could be a massive undertaking. Um, again, some of the things that companies think are a little bit, um, you know, too severe in terms of providing any type of records access whatsoever, and they're worried about confidentiality and so forth. Um, so there are, yeah, those are some of the examples of, of, of issues that, F, that some of the industry is I guess opposed to, but um, but they also I think you know what could be interesting is having FDA regulate or review ingredients in a systematic way. Um, but again, you know there would have to be very strong preemption terms in place to ensure that if FDA finally looks at parabens, which are constantly under question, right? You know, parabens are they safe? It's a widely used preservative. Um, and if FDA were finally to say, okay, we're going to look at these parabens and we've seen the data and we think this is safe for uh, consumer use. I mean, that would finally take that issue a little bit, you know, sort of off the table for industry and allow them to not worry about that so much. There are other preservatives, of course, that industry uses that are always under question as well. Um, and that causes, you know, problems for industry in terms of ensuring uh, the safety of products because they depend on preservatives. If FDA were to start reviewing those and say, okay, we're green lighting these, uh, that would be great for industry, but um, you know I can't imagine that the NGO community necessarily would just say, "Okay, FDA has reviewed it. That's the end of the story." You know, would all states and local, you know, governments have to uh, respect that, or could they go on saying, "Well, we disagree, and we think you shouldn't be using this ingredient," or we think, uh, "Okay, you can use it, but you have to um, let consumers be aware that you are using it, you, or you have to label it, or in a special way. Um, you know, those are the considerations that I think industry doesn't want to take on more federal oversight and then still have all the same problems that they have at the state and local levels. Mm. So it's really a mixed bag, um, and you can see why it's you know very difficult to get a, 
a reform bill of this nature over the finish line. Yeah. <laughs> so so basically the situation in the US is uh, is pretty complex. So <laughs> <laughs> so to moving over to the EU then, you've got another big bit of legislation. Well, I mean it's like a multifaceted uh, framework, isn't it? The European Green Deal, which basically affects like every sector. Um, but it seems like there are particular parts of it that, um, that can potentially impact the cosmetics industry. Do you want to just say a little bit about the um, European Green Deal and what it is and, and exactly how it's going to, what it's looking like or already is affecting uh, cosmetics industry in Europe? Sure. The, yeah, I mean, the, the European Green Deal, again, is this huge, I think, package of sort of um, principles, almost, that, that, you know, the EU would like to pursue uh, in terms of transforming the economy and making it climate neutral by 2050, I think it is. Um, and so it's sort of a vision for the future of the EU. Um, but underneath that, you need to have, you know, countless number of sort of legislative and non-legislative measures that need to be implemented in order to make that a reality. So take this from the level of, you know, the hypothetical to the real, you know, you need to implement these things in some way. And that's where I think you're going to be seeing a lot more of these sort of strategies unrolling and then from there, uh, legislative measures. Uh, but for now, it's just kind of like this vision of what needs to happen. P part of it is, I think, that we've been looking at is the which is key for the cosmetics industry is this uh, sustainable chemical strategy that has been released. I think that was the end of last year. Uh, so the Green Deal was announced at the end of 2019, and then end of last year was the um, the release of the sustainable chemical strategy. And it really would, you know, transform um, chemicals use in the EU. In, in in a lot of ways. And even just this strategy, though, would, of course, need you know implementing measures. But um, what I think you're seeing overall is that, <laughs> well, a couple of things. I mean, I think to some extent there's this idea that cosmetics should just be natural. And natural is a pretty vague, ill-defined term um, as, you know, everybody's sort of shy from actually having to define what natural means. But there's a sense that, well, just make cosmetics natural and, and everything will be fine. Of course, natural products can have, you know, their own safety concerns, mm -hmm. um, and it's just not quite that simple as just everybody be natural. And, and of course, that would impact the diversity of products on the market. Um, you know, require tons of reformulation. It's just a, a completely new approach um, to providing consumers with, you know, sort of the the products and effects and so forth that they demand. But of course, but of course, that natural things are made up of chemicals and. Uh... And you know these basic elements as well. I think there's this, there was this interesting uh, like public relations campaign. I can't remember who did it or where it was from, where there was like a poster of a banana or something like that, and then it would break down uh, underneath the kind of chemical components of it. You know, some of these things are. It's like when you'd look at the back of a some shampoo or something, and you see all these different chemical names. But I mean, it's right. not. It's not to say that the you know these aren't natural elements and and ingredients isn't it it's like a right, perception right. thing exactly yeah yeah it's it's everything can be broken down to like you know the chemical basis for them so you know yeah terms like chemical free and so forth don't really make any sense um and and i think there is generally like a lack of understanding of of natural versus synthetic and so forth but 
but that's kind of like the broad you have that kind of undercurrent there like everything be natural and then you have very much a i just think you're seeing far more hazard averse sort of language um, in the green deal and in the sustainable chemical strategy um, versus you know the risk-based language that industry would always push so you know everything is industry would say everything is hazardous at a certain level you know the dose makes the poison that whole thing um whereas a lot of this messaging you're seeing from the eu is that if something is hazardous well it should be avoided um and so that is obviously something that concerns industry because you know how do you play that game does that mean anytime there's any kind of animal study that shows a signal of of any type of hazard whatsoever you you just don't use that degree i mean what's going to be left i mean that's that's also like pharmaceuticals isn't it i mean in the otc side like every medicine has side effects but like any medicine that does anything has a side effect is about balancing risk and benefit isn't it you can't just rule it out because it's not safe well that's the other interesting piece is that is there sort of a undertone here of you know that cosmetics you know can, can just be avoided altogether you know i, I think industry says basically that they're that some of this movement is very much undervaluing i think the benefits that people get from cosmetics um you know so you know we'll see but i'm sure the industry is concerned about language about like sort of they they allude to automatic bans for chemicals that cause cancers or gene mutations affect the reproductive of the endocrine system are persistent and bioaccumulative you know again you know are we looking at that on a hazard or sort of more methodical risk-based um you know through through what lens are we are we approaching that um so there's a lot of like concrete details that are needed in terms of what's going forward uh, cosmetics europe has weighed in on this and and you know again generally supports a lot of the sort of um you know the underlying impetus of this thing um but it's you know to just to tell industry be different you know and be safer and not really have a plan for how companies get there and and what resources they're supposed to use in order to get there and um, what direction they're supposed to be observing, you know, it's it's just, it, it's very much, you know, still at the level of vision versus how we actually going to put this in place. Um, mm. And there's a lot of questions and concerns for industry in that sort of unknown territory. So, yeah, do we want to just maybe just go into some of the key issues a bit more? So you mentioned that these, um, these ingredients are being reviewed. Um, so from what I understand, you've got kind of two parts that you've got, like you just mentioned, these endo endocrine disruptors. Um, and then also microplastic seems to be something that comes up a lot in your in your stories. What I mean, what are, what are these? What are these things and why are they a problem? Yeah, that's sort of, um, you know, those are some of the big ones where we're seeing a lot of ingredients that are permitted under the cosmetic product regulation um, that have been in use for you know a long time and you know really i don't think have any um you know obvious safety problems that can be pointed to but they're now being looked at and say well do they have certain hormonal effects are they potential endocrine disruptors and you know should they be re-reviewed on that basis um and some of this was sort of built into legislation where the commission had to, in, you know, uh, to look at the cosmetics regulation and term, determine if that sort of was sufficient in order to capture endocrine disruptors and deal with them properly. Um, 
And through that, the commission has now basically created these lists of potential endocrine disruptors um, that it is then having the Scientific Committee on Consumer Safety re-review uh, through the lens of, okay, well, is this an endocrine disruptor? And if so, do we need to change our assumptions about it and our regulatory position on it? Um, and by the way, the same thing's happening with like nanomaterials. So you have these kind of big sort of like broad category groups that are that are being sort of re-reviewed through different lenses and possibly against you know what seems to be a changing safety standard in the EU, more hazard averse versus risk based. Um, and so that's got to be concerning to industry and, and for a number of reasons. Uh, but you see generally, you know, what we what we've seen with the endocrine disruptors or potential endocrine disruptors is that they're getting pushed to the scientific committee on consumer safety. Like I said, SCCS is then sort of looking at them and from some of the decisions we've seen or some of the opinions it has issued, it says, we don't think this is a problem, but there's not really a benchmark for, you know, this types of, for when, you know, certain endocrine disrupting properties, you know, things that have hormonal effects, when that rises to the level of a concern for human health safety. This is sort of a relatively new field of inquiry. So SCCS, I think, is just saying, how do we, how are we supposed to judge this? Are we supposed to be approaching this in a radically new way? Um, and what happens then is that you ultimately then have the same ingredients because SCCS kind of has an inconclusive opinion. The same ingredients then are looked at under REACH, which is the you know big chemicals law in the EU. And the problem there is that the European Commission, or sorry, the European Chemicals Agency can look at the dossiers for those ingredients. So you have registrants who have registered their use of those ingredients. They provided safety information. European Chemicals Agency can look at that dossier and then say, yep, you know, there are gaps here. We don't know about, um, you know, endocrine disruption or whatever the case may be. And European Commission or Chemicals Agency, sorry, can then say, well, we need this data. So we want you, cosmetics company X or cosmetics supplier X, to do animal testing on this ingredient in order to fill the data gaps. Um, and that then creates a conflict because, you know, you have an animal testing ban fully in effect under the cosmetic products regulation since like March 2013. I think that's right. Um, and, you know, so companies are saying, you know, which which has primacy here? You know, the, the cosmetics regulation or reach. Uh, we can't do both, basically. And of course, that's hugely unpopular with consumers as well, isn't it? I mean, this was a huge issue some years ago, which I assume is why that came in. And the last thing companies want is, you know, their Twitter feeds or, uh, you know, Instagram or whatever, just with people just going, you know, ban animal testing, you know, why are you testing your products and animals uh, when they're stuck between a rock and a hard place? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, consumers don't want it. They don't want cosmetics tested on animals or cosmetic ingredients. Um, co cosmetics companies don't want this. I mean, I think when the, the ban was first implemented, you know, cosmetics industry was generally opposed to the ban because they said we don't have the alternative testing strategies to, to use in place of animal testing. So we either have to just use old existing ingredients and have no innovation on the ingredient front, or I guess we're out of luck. Um, but they have since then invested, you know, a lot of money in in developing alternative methods um, alongside like the NGO community and so forth. So you have almost all of the uh, other stakeholders who, who are calling for, you know, animal tests not to be required for cosmetic ingredients and to for authorities to 
um, accept, you know, alternative methods uh, and sort of catch up with the science and start, you know, honoring some of these investments that are being made. Um, so, so it's really, it's a tough spot. And we've seen that, for example, companies, um, suppliers, cosmetic ingredient suppliers are challenging, you know, the European Chemicals Agency on its orders to do animal testing. The European Chemicals Agency's appellate board has uphold, upheld the, uh, the position of ECHA um, that, that those tests are indeed needed and that, that you know, that the cosmetics regulation is, is its own thing and they don't really, there doesn't need to be an interaction between them and they're just separate and everything's fine. Um, but now I think we have had word that one of these cases is going to be, um, is going to be challenged at the, uh, the high court level in, in the EU. Um, so we'll see what happens there. I mean, I, I don't, I can't really imagine that the, uh, the court of justice is going to uh, side on the level of, you know, of, of not, is it going to go against ECHA on this? I mean, ECHA is saying, hey, we have this, this uh, very important chemicals regulation where we need to know how these chemicals affect human health. And if we don't have the data, we need to use whatever methods that we think are necessary in order to get that data. I'm not sure that the court is going to be able to or is going to decide that the cosmetics regulation has primacy over reach in that capacity, but mm. but we'll have to see. But it but it certainly makes mm. problems for companies, problems for their reputation, problems for their mm. cruelty-free status. Um, and you're seeing just more and more of this. Well, it sounds like a PR nightmare like, waiting to happen. But I mean, this is not going to get any easier because people are becoming more and more conscious of all of this stuff and, you know, with you know, transition to a sustainable, I mean, it's not just about carbon, isn't it? It's just about the whole thing about nature and about uh you know our impact on animal species and stuff like if anything consumers are going to get more conscious of this so the eu could find itself on the wrong side of that um you know yeah, that movement, right. it's, it's, <laughs> that's really interesting i mean yeah you're right because there do seem to be some conflicting um uh you know philosophies here i you know i, I think industry and the animal welfare community would would argue that you know, the regulatory bodies just need to catch up with the alternative methods and everything can be done through alternative methods. But I don't think that's quite accurate either. I mean, there do seem to be some some toxicological endpoints where there aren't really clear ways of going about that through alternative methods, um, which is not to say that animal testing is always reliable. Mm. Um, but but anyway, it, it is it is certainly a problem. <laughs> so and then. So what about microplastics? Is it the same story there or is there a slight nuance? The microplastic, um, you know, it's been very difficult to get an update on that. Um, but uh, we do expect there to be an update by the end of the year. But this was, right, a proposal from, again, ECHA, European Chemicals Agency, um, at the behest of European Commission. Um, and the proposal is to ban microplastic ingredients that are deliberately added um in a number of products but including cosmetics and that's all cosmetics um so industry already has voluntarily in the in the eu eliminated microbeads which is sort of the most famous example of microplastic i think but the microbeads that were in sort of scrubbing products for the shower mm -hmm. and those of course rinsed right down the drain and uh, were not captured maybe in the filtration of you know, waste management and so forth but um and so they could end up then in natural bodies of water 
industry, you know, saw the way the uh, the winds were blowing and and got rid of those, phased those out of their their products. But this proposal would affect all cosmetics, and that includes those that don't, you know, rinse down the drain. That you know, that you know, makeup and lip products and nail care and things that that you wouldn't really think have a an environment, you know, an impact on on on, on the oceans and rivers and so forth. Um, and there really is just a, you know, a, a, a lot of microplastic ingredients that are used in cosmetics uh, beyond just microbeads. Um, and they have, you know, what I can gather are some important effects for the consumers want. Um, so, you know, I think there's obviously consumers would say, no, we don't want microplastic. Nobody likes the idea of microplastic raining down everywhere and so forth. But mm. it is, you know, important to the functionality and the aesthetics and so forth of a lot of cosmetic products. So industry has a massive sort of costs ahead of it if this goes through as proposed, which which it, nothing has stopped it yet. Um, and there's been plenty of you know opportunities, um, lots of costs, lots of reformulations ahead. I mean, thousands and thousands of reformulations. Um, you know, industry is trying to get some derogations uh, or or extended periods for compliance, um, but you know, have been unsuccessful so far. I think now they've been in sort of the member state level where they could gain, get some traction, you know, talking to actual member states about, hey, you know, this could have a pretty serious impact on your cosmetics industry there. Um, so we'll see what happens with it. But it's, it's again, one it's very, very going to be very difficult to stop the momentum behind, behind that proposal. And, um, and I'm not sure that, you know, it's interesting. It, I'm not sure of... You know, if consumers sort of know what they're bargaining for here, um, you know, if they would agree that, you know, microplastic has to be taken out of, of, you know, lip products, nail products, makeup, which is usually just sort of wiped off and disposed in the trash and ends up in the landfill. Um, is that so important to them that they're willing to give up sort of some of the things they like about makeup? Um, at least, you know, I just don't know if that's been presented to them. Maybe maybe they are willing to do that, but it's I don't think consumers really have a grasp on sort of what is at stake here. I don't think all of industry is really, you know, dispute on what is at stake here. So it's a big issue, and we're definitely looking forward to getting an update there in terms of whether uh, industry is successful with um, some of their, you know, some of the pushes they're doing to to limit the scope of this proposal somewhat. So we'll see. It's really interesting, is it? It's like the cosmetics industry more than maybe the other, because like you said, HPW is basically OTCs, cosmetics and food supplements. This may be the case for food supplements, but I mean, in general, this is a very much consumer-facing, all three parts of this area that we cover are consumer-facing, but cosmetics probably more than any other part of it, where, you know, they're really caught behind, the company's really caught between this push for sustainability and then all of the things that come with it i mean i was thinking when you were speaking there about for example uh clean energy you know and and like some of the technology needed for like electric cars or whatever and like the batteries and all of this stuff you know the components are basically have to be mined uh you know in places like congo which and there's you know people say uh there's not enough of these elements like cobalt actually that we know about in on the planet earth to fuel this uh green revolution you know so it's like consumers really want this in the abstract but actually the detail is really complicated and it's yeah. and it's industry that's stuck in the middle of that isn't it because they basically want to do the right thing it seems definitely 
from some of the interviews I've been doing uh, in the OTC side. But then they have to satisfy regulators and consumers at the same time, don't they? It must be really difficult. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the um, yeah the pressure to be sustainable. Well, as you say, I mean sustainability. There's so many complexities that go into these considerations, um, and uh, it, it must be tough. You know, I thought it must be tough to be like a you know a new compass startup, right? And and mm-hmm. suddenly just sort of wading into this and being like, oh, we you know we're trying to put a you know, an innovative product on the market, but we also have to be sustainable while we're doing it at the moment. And, you know, how much can we sort of build that into our infrastructure and, and you know, big companies maybe can pivot a bit and, and, and do this more um, more easily. I don't know. I mean, obviously, big companies have a lot more, you know, to turn around the ship is a lot more of a um, an ordeal. But, um, but anyway, yeah, it poses challenges. I mean, hugely complex issues. Uh, the microplastic, by the way, you know that they're trying to get rid of that. In um, it, that affects uh, European football pitches too. Mm. By the way, I think that's where they've actually run into some of the hardest resistance, where people are saying, "Don't mess with our football." <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, I mean, some massive things going on. It, the environmental push, I think, we'll continue to see. We'll see that in the U.S. as well. I mean, the FDA is is looking now at like sunscreen ingredients, environmental impacts. Um, because there's, you know, a sort of uh, structure of, of requirements across laws that, that require them to do so. Um, and and that's sort of an odd place for FDA to be, and it puts more pressure on the sunscreen category, by the way, which which has enough pressure already. I mean, I, it's like virtually every sunscreen ingredient is being looked at, again, from a safety standpoint and or environmental standpoint. Um, so, yeah, it'll be – industry has, you know – a lot on its plate, um, for sure. So just going finally back to the kind of original point that you were making and the and the question, you you were making the point that you know regulations on the rise, and that maybe this this plays out differently for for different bits of the industry in terms of size maybe. Um, so is that is that the case with the EU green deal as well? Yeah. Well, I mean. Just, just the. I, mean, I mentioned one piece of the European Green Deal, which is the the sustainable chemical chemical strategy. But I mean, they're trying to transform the economy, the economy, and and you know, business and so forth across virtually every element that you can think of. Um, and like I said, it's sort of like this this nest of things that has to happen, where you have sort of the the top level sort of aims and principles, and then you need all these different pieces of legislation or other measures to implement it. I mean, it's just I can't imagine having to keep track of that if you're a, a smaller company. Um, um, and I, and I'm not trying to shortchange what, 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 uh, big companies are up against as well, but, uh, but yeah, there's just so much going on there. And so it's just so little visibility into how the future is going to shape out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it's gotta be difficult to plan ahead for your business. Um, not knowing, you know, if, if, you know, the ingredients you use are going to be still available and, and uh, allowable, um, not knowing if the processes you're using are going to be permitted. Um, you know, how much do you need to invest in some of these changes that are sort of being proposed now versus um, versus down the line? We still have time to do it. And where will your business be at that point? I mean, it's just, you know, I, I think it's it's I can't imagine being being a startup in that sort of environment. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. you know, relying a lot on their trade groups to kind of keep them informed and and uh, publications like ours, hopefully. But um, <laughs> but uh 
yeah, I mean, it's 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 got to be very difficult. And I would say, you know, the problem, the, the challenges for small and big companies are probably different, but um, but you know, it, it's it's equally burdensome for sure. I mean, everybody has to deal with this. Um, so I think a lot of it is going to come down to when you start seeing some more of those concrete proposals for how do we actually make this a reality instead of just sort of this castle in the sky, sort of like this is what we love for the world and this is what we love for the EU, but how do we get there? You know, some more um, detailed blueprints for exactly what is going to be expected of companies. You know, then maybe they can start to say, okay, this is something we can we can roll with, but um, but we'll have to see. A lot yeah. of them, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you say, you know, it's a shameless plug for HPW Insight, but I think, you know, this is the this is what we're trying to provide, and I think, uh, watch out for some uh, some more great articles from you, and you know, going into those details. I think this is when you need a good, reliable source of information, don't you? That you're going to get an interpretation of what's actually happening, so that you can plan. Yeah, yeah, no, I would hope so. Um... Yeah, we 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 love to be. I mean, and we are obviously willing to speak with um with anyone who wants to reach out and and talk about these issues. Um, you know, I've been trying to get a bit more visibility into sort of exactly what's at stake with microplastic in the some of these more sensitive categories, uh, like the makeup and so forth. Like, you know, speaking to a formulator, exactly what does this mean? If you can't use plastic ingredients, what is the resulting? I mean, it's obviously a pain and a cost to have to reformulate, but can it be done? Um, industry is is obviously alluded to the fact that no this is going to be very difficult you're not going to have the same products you're not going to have as many products sort of hinted at that but you know getting some really insight uh, some really good insight into exactly what's at stake here just so because I, I, I think that consumers again maybe would be very interested in knowing you know what you're sort of bargaining for here what you know we mm-hmm. everybody wants a cleaner earth and you know a greener uh, practices and all that kind of stuff um, but again, you know, the devil's in the details and, and what is being lost along the way versus what is being gained. Um, so always happy to talk to anybody if they want to reach out and uh, give us some um, some more information or insight on that. Okay, so um, if you want to if you want to talk to HPW Insight, get in touch. And uh, thanks thanks so much, Ryan, for the time you've taken to give us that really excellent overview. I think and that'll be really useful to um, to listeners in industry and elsewhere because. You can get this podcast for free. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Over the Counter. Watch out for new episodes in the future on the HPW Insight website, on our LinkedIn and Twitter pages, and on SoundCloud. See you soon.